One of the things about Christmas uh, I think about a lot is uh, that Christmas is actually a very political event. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Like, it's actually really political. Um, we often think of Christmas as about a, just a private faith or a, a cultural experience or family or presents or gifts, and, and those are all true and good. But it's also an event that is full of amazing political consequences. And uh, we can look at that today as we look at Psalm 72, which is a psalm uh, for, set in some of the liturgies for the third Sunday in Advent, which is where we are. And uh, have a listen to how the psalmist and how God pictures the people, the king of Israel, or what government should look like. And uh, I thought this is particularly important because I don't know about you, but if you read the papers, sometimes it's easy to despair of our governments, isn't it? Not just in Australia, but all around the developed world, we seem to have this crisis of government and governance and leadership. So in that context, you know, the Donald's about to ascend to the throne. Um, you know, we have a, a borderline minority government here. There are minority governments all around the world. We can't get any substantial legislation through the Senate. Uh, all kinds of challenges, right? Last week of sitting, you know, last week where our federal government's sitting and all they're doing is squabbling about a jolly, you know, backpackers tax and ignoring scientists' views on an emissions trading scheme. Like, it's just bonkers. So in the midst of all of this global, these global challenges politically, uh, this psalm tells us what a leader should be. Here's, here's this prayer of Solomon praying for his son who's going to become the king. And he says this, Endow the king with your justice. Now, um, just uh, let me give you a little helpful little word here. This word justice actually can also be translated in the way justice is worked in the New Testament and actually even in our legal system today. Uh, Endure, endow the king with your decisions, O God. So the psalmist is saying a good government, a good leader, is somebody who has the capacity to make the decisions that God would make were God making those in that leader's place. Does that make sense? So they're making godly decisions, which, which is how justice gets enacted, one decision at a time. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have political leaders who could make decisions with the mind of God? Actually understanding all the data and having an eternal perspective and really getting what this world is about. I mean, I, and, and this, is not, this is not necessary to criticize them. This would be a wonderful thing. Don't you find making decisions hard? Like how in your own life do you know what the right thing to do is? That can be really complicated and tricky. And let alone trying to make decisions for a government where the implications of your decision last, you know, 30 or 40 years. Amazing. Or, or a generation or two or three. So uh, the Bible says what we want is a leader who can uh, decide with the kind of wisdom of God, which would be pretty cool. And then um, endow the king with your justice and the royal son with your righteousness. Another root, part of the Hebrew root here is actually faithfulness. Uh, faithfulness to what? Well, in, in the psalmist's world, it's faithfulness to their covenant with God, that they're accountable to God and their, their act of governing and ruling needs to be out of that deep, close relationship of trust and obedience and accountability to God. Uh, again, let's think about our own leadership. Uh, 
Politically, wouldn't it be amazing if our leaders understood that they are actually accountable to someone beyond just the next, beyond themselves, and are accountable to God? Uh, currently, in a, so for example, in our liberal democracy, say in a country like Australia, one of the great problems we have with the way democracy is working out in our world is our leaders are only accountable to the next electoral cycle. Their, their, their primary driver is to get elected, re-elected. And in fact, even, even more short-term than that, many of the decisions are really driven by the, by the latest or the next set of polling data. So if you think that... Uh, you know, if a government thinks that if they make this decision, they're going to go down in the polls, they might lose the election, they're not going to do it, even if it might be good for the country. Typically, that's how democracy is working out. And it's interesting. Uh, what would it be like in a democracy to have leaders who had a sense that they're accountable to God to make decisions that will be good for the country as a whole, even if it gets them voted out of power? I was reading an article in The Guardian uh, this week, uh, and The Guardian was arguing, I can't remember who the author was, there was this article writing saying one of the major problems in Australia is none of our political leadership has any overarching narrative, no grand narrative of what it is to be Australian. What is our place in the world? Where are we going? So we've got this short-term, narrow, pragmatic and reactive response and no one's making any of the big, tough decisions that will set us up for the next 30 or 40 years and ensure generational justice and flourishing. We're just living from you know, one news cycle, uh, one election to the next with no grand narrative. And the Bible says, actually, leaders, the king, needs to be faithful to God, needs to understand that they're accountable to God. Now, this, by the way, also not just works for in democratic systems of government. It's also really good in monarchies or uh, dictatorships. And one of the major restraints on evil uh, that historically have restrained dictators from exercising great evil is the fact that the dictator, if they were a, uh, believed in, in a God and in judgment in the afterlife, the threat of spending an eternity uh, in hell because of their actions as king or queen was a major restraint on their evil. It's interesting, I don't know if any of you uh, are Netflix watchers, uh, if you've watched um, the Netflix show um, The Crown, right? A little story of, um, and I, I'm not endorsing it, this, this sermon is not brought to you by Netflix, There's no, I've no skin in that particular game. Um, uh, but in The Crown, what's, what I hadn't realized quite as clearly as was brought out in the episode around the coronation of Queen Elizabeth is, is how deeply Christian Queen Elizabeth is and the whole institution of the English monarchy where, for, you know, wrongly in my view, but in their view, they, for, for a thousand years, they viewed that there is an ontological change in the monarch when they are anointed with oil. The monarch is changed by God. There is a meeting of the divine and the human. And the monarch of England is changed by their uh, coronation and is accountable ultimately to God. Now, that's, that's how leaders should lead Be because they're accountable to God. And they're going, to give an, they're going to be judged on the basis of their leadership. Now, uh, if, if you're going to make decisions in the way that God does, and you're going to be accountable to God, what's that going to look like in practice, in leadership? Well, look at uh, how this prayer in Psalm 72 continues. Uh, the, the first thing the psalm talks about, the first measure of accountability for leadership, is how the king is going to treat who? 
day he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. And then he goes on, may he, look at this, may he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. What does a God-fearing ruler who makes decisions in the light of, in the way God does and is an accountable to God and faithful to his covenant with God, how does that ruler rule? That ruler rules in a way that, that serves the afflicted, the broken, the, the, the afflicted among the people, the children of the needy. So he brings justice for the poor and the marginalized and the needy. That's what a good ruler does. Which is extraordinary, right? It's, it's actually really easy to govern in the interests of the powerful and the rich. <laughs> That's easy. Every government naturally does that because we govern in our own interests. And God's view of government says, actually, you know what? You've got to do this. You've got to defend the afflicted among the people. That's what governments should do to make sure that there is justice for the children of the needy. And as part of that, and this is a verse that warms the cockles of my heart, and should be on all of our Christmas postcards, Christmas greetings. May, may, may our government crush the oppressor. Isn't that awesome? To put an end to evildoers. That's what governments do. That's a fundamental part of government to put an end to those who do evil. Uh, so uh, a couple of us here are quite heavily involved, and as a church, we're, we're quite broadly involved with the work of the International Justice Mission. One of the reasons I love the work of IJM is that their theory of change comes straight out of texts like this, which says the, uh, they, they work to reform justice systems so that evildoers get crushed by their existing justice system that evil people cannot continue to oppress the poor with impunity. And IJM's model is to work with locals to reform the justice system so the justice system delivers justice, which means you break the models of slavery and trafficking because now the costs go up because you end up in jail. You get crushed. That's a, now, that's a good thing. That's what governments are meant to do. Governments, so Paul talks about this in Romans 13, governments carry the sword to restrain wickedness and evil and bring about justice. This is what good government does. But it's not just what I like. It's not just uh, when good government doesn't just care for the poor. Good government is actually a necessary condition for overall human flourishing. Look at this. Uh, May the mountains... Bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. So God's vision of leadership is good government creates the conditions for human flourishing and prosperity economically, right? So, uh, you know, Margot, my wife, has been involved in aid and development for years. I grew up in Africa for the first 20 years of my life. Um, my, gr my grandfather, my mum's father, was a, a very senior doctor with the World Health Organization after the Second World War uh, and pioneered a lot of the WHO's anti-malaria programs in Southern Africa. And my experience in Africa, Margaret's experience in aid and development, anyone who thoughtfully reads about this will know that, and, and my grandfather's experience, which is why in, he gave up on Africa and went and retired you know, on the banks of Lake Geneva in Switzerland in, in, a, in a bit of cynicism and despair, 
was he said, all your grassroots uh, economic development and trade and humanitarian aid, all your little businesses, all your flourishing, all of that work can be undone by one coup, by one dictator, by one evil government. So all the work you do, if, you've got, if, it, if, if, the, if, the, if the head is rotten, the whole of the fish will rot. If the head of the government is rotten, then it creates poverty for all. Now, good government by itself is not a sufficient condition for economic flourishing. All the other pieces have to be in place, um, and, and it's much more complicated in discussion than even I have time for this morning, um, certainly than you have time for. But a good government can kill economic and social flourishing in a society just like that. So the psalmist says one of the signs of good government is that it's going to care for the poor and the afflicted and the marginalized and the oppressed. It's going to bring an end to injustice and it's going to create the conditions for overall economic flourishing where we all, where we all have all our basic needs met and then some. That's God's vision for government, right? That's what he plans to do. And guess what happens when that happens? As we look in the rest of the psalm, uh, when leadership like this is exercised, it is incredibly appealing to the human heart. Now, I mean, not necessarily to other tyrants and dictators, but there is something in all of us that is drawn to that kind of leadership, isn't there? Strong, good, powerful leadership, exercised for the poor, ending injustice and causing human flourishing. Don't we all want that? And the psalmist says, when that happens, listen, Everybody's going to be drawn to that kind of leadership. When the king of Israel rules like that, the desert tribes are going to bow before him. His enemies are going to lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish will bring tributes to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him presents. All kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. I mean, it's that kind of leadership is uh, it's like light to a moth. It draws us in because it taps into this deep human yearning for leadership like that. And, and again, lest we're slow learners, um, why do these people, why are they drawn in? Just so you don't think I'm making it up. Uh, verse 8, 9, and 10, and 11 tell us that they are. And then verse 12, 4 why are they drawn in for? Because he will deliver the, and then deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in his sight. To have a leader for whom the blood of the needy and the afflicted and the weak uh, is precious, like that they matter. The poor matter and he has the power and he uses his power to rescue them and serve them and lift them up and give them life. That is a compelling vision of leadership, isn't it? And the psalmist says it's because of this kind of leadership that, the, that, that all the surrounding nations are going to come and go, wow, yeah, that's, that's how life should work, isn't it? That's how life should work. And then, of course, if you have a leader like this, you want the leader to last, don't you? You want the leader to last. Long may he live. And it was typically he, but it doesn't have to be. Long may he live. 
Long may, he, may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. So you want this kind of a leader. Once we find that sort of leadership, you want it to last and go on and on and on and on because that's what's good for us. We need that sort of leadership, don't we? Now, when you think about this vision of leadership and political government, and when you then think about our current political leaders, what do you feel? Despair? Sorry? Uninspired? Disappointed? All of those things. We do, don't we? But stop and think about it for a moment. You know, when we look at, um, I don't know, for my Canadian friends are going to be listening in onto this, uh, Justin Trudeau gets elected in in Canada, doing lots of great stuff, and then he comes out and eulogizes Fidel Castro. And you just go, what a moron. Like, honest to goodness. I had lots of friends who voted for Trudeau in Canada, and all my, the social media lights up with any of my thoughtful friends going, I'll never vote for him again because of that. Even a really good leader, and I, you know, I think good leader with a great vision for inclusion and the poor and all the rest of it, is capable of some enormous blind spots and failures. Um, the Donald. Or Obama. I mean, don't you feel disappointed with him? The dude gets the Nobel Peace Prize and then is the most hawkish uh, president we've had in years. You know, the, the drone strikes have gone up exponentially with him, targeted assassinations of American citizens. I mean, the guys, you know, he's, he has not made a whole lot of peace in the world, you know. Done lots of other great stuff, but flawed, flawed, disappointing. Our leaders. Oh, let's all talk, you know. Give me a break. Backpack attacks in the last week of sitting parliament. Backflipping on carbon's emission scheme when you as the Prime Minister have been the one who argued for it. Uh, you just go, this is, there's a, there's a pop, and, and you know, the, the opposition's no better, the Greens aren't any better, like no one's any better. Every political leader is so flawed and disappointing, aren't they? But here's the thing, it's really easy to look at the flaws and the disappointments in other people. But you know what, um, you and I also are sovereigns over a particular sphere of reality aren't we? Like, we might, there are parts of the world over which our will is done, where we're in control. Now, my will is not done over all of Australia in the way the will of the parliaments is done, which is probably a good thing. Maybe. No, it's a good thing. Um, but my will is done in a, in a sphere of influence where I'm the king, I'm in charge of my life. I'm the sovereign, Right? And you're the sovereign. You have a sphere of influence where your will is done and you exercise agency over others. So now, when you think about yourself as the leader of your own little kingdom or queendom, I'm not sure that really works, but you know, your own little sovereign sphere, you know, the country, uh, the country of Anne or the, you know, <laughs> the, the, the country of Mal or the country of Margot or the country of Mark, in my little sphere, how am I going against this standard? Because here's the problem. Am I not just like our political leaders or to put it another way, are they not really just like me? Do I always use my agency and power 
to first and foremost care for the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed and the needy? Is that my, is that my instinctive response? Do I have the capacity to make decisions like God? I have that level of insight into the world? Do I, do I have that? Do I live every moment of my life in the sphere of my sovereignty and responsibility, aware that I'm going to be accountable to God for everything and that I'm faithful to Him in everything? Do you do that? Is that how you live? See, our disappointments with our political leadership flow out of our deep disappointments with ourselves, actually, if we're honest. This is the human problem. We have no leadership like this. We're tragically flawed. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, writing in the Russian Gulag, said, the line between good and evil doesn't lie between nation states or cultures. It goes straight through the heart of every human being. It's here. I'm a flawed leader in my little sphere of influence, and so are you. Now, what does that have to do with Christmas? I'm glad you asked. Well, Christmas says God looks at our failure of leadership within our own hearts, enacted in all our political systems, and says, I am going to give for you the leader that your hearts long for. I'm going to provide for you that leadership which you deeply yearn for and long for and that will draw all nations to come and follow. I'm going to do that. And the paradox, the amazing thing, the politically revolutionary idea of Christmas is that it enacts and incarnates exactly this vision of kingship. How does God, assuming there is a God and assuming the Christian story is true, which let's assume it for a moment, how does this God, this creator, actually come to rule the world? Well, because this God comes to, uh, you know, take pity on the weak and the needy, to save the needy from death, to rescue them from oppression and violence, to, to deliver the needy. How does God come into this world? With great power and influence. Well, God actually empties himself of all power and enters the world on the margins as a extraordinarily, exquisitely vulnerable refugee Jew as a minority group in a massive tyrannical empire, uh, existing on the margins with no security or status. That's how God comes. That's the leader God sends us, who right from the get-go comes to do what none of us as leaders and no political leaders can ever do consistently. And this little baby Jesus comes to save the needy, to rescue the afflicted, and to grow up and to crush the oppressor. This is the radical politics of Christmas. The radical politics of Christmas says, and of Advent says, every human leader will disappoint, including me. And where do we look for leadership? Well, Isaiah 9 says that on his shoulders will rest the government of the world. This little baby born in a manger or some other, you know, place for keeping farm animals, this little baby, emptied of everything, will be the leader that we're all looking for and longing for. What Advent also says, though, which is incredibly good news, is this little baby uh, didn't just stay a baby, but grew up and suffered and died for us. But as we wait, the Bible, the final culmination of the story is this baby will come back as a reigning God 
to actually put an end to all the suffering and the injustice. The work of this God has started in the manger, but it will be finished at his second coming. This is how the Bible finishes. says, Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, that's when finally, fully, and forever, all evil is crushed. Every oppressor is destroyed. Every weak person, every needy person, every afflicted person is finally lifted up and given their full dignity. This is the moment when Jesus returns in his second coming in triumph and glory that the, the tears are wiped away from all our eyes and everything is made right when King Jesus comes back. That's what we hope for. That's the Christmas story, right? And politically, what does that mean? Well, it means we have a message for this world that says our human politics, as good as it is, and we can build out a Christian political theory, our Christian, our human politics will never, ever finally bring in the kingdom of God. No human person will be the answer to what's really wrong with the world. Because you and I, the problems within every heart, it's not just a political system. It means, for example, as Jacques Ellul, a very influential French theologian and philosopher in, uh, after the Second World War in the 60s and 70s, uh, who I read a lot of when I was at university in Cape Town and trying to think through my involvement politically, Ellul said, it's so important for followers of Jesus to be involved on the whole political spectrum. In our context, it would be, you know, we need Christians in the Greens. I mean, we need Christians in the Labour Party. We need Christians in the, the, the Liberals, Christians in the Nats, Christians in One Nation. We need Christian independence. We need Christians across the whole spectrum of the political process. Why? Because our presence on the political spectrum is a witness that ultimately only King Jesus is going to bring justice and full final healing for the world. Every other political process is only temporary, and contingent and inadequate. We can, and, and this is a wonderful contribution we as Christians have because you know what? We can debate the issues. We can hold this vision that God has. The first criteria for all government is how does it treat the weak and the afflicted and the needy? And, and you can debate that and you can have different arguments economically and the role of government and so forth. But as Christians, we do all of that. And we continue to, we continue to be involved in, in politics and in justice reform. But in, in our heart of hearts, we know that before I point my finger at my political opponents or the failure of political leadership, I have to look in my own heart and I say, you know what, I'm a failed leader. <laughs> and I need, I need Jesus. I need King Jesus to change my heart. That's my hope. That's your hope. That's the greatest hope of the world, right? We have this king who's going to do exactly that. And he says, you know what? You can come and be part of my kingdom. Just follow me. That's the most revolutionary news in the world. <laughs> Let's pray. Our great God, we uh, thank you for King Jesus who came to give to this world what our hearts long for, to give good government, to deliver the needy, the afflicted who have no one to help, to take pity on the weak, to save the needy from death, to rescue them from oppression and violence. Lord, that's us. Spiritually, we're those people. Some of us are even that economically and politically. And we are precious in your sight, O oh Lord. And so we pray for the world this Christmas that you will bless this world with good human government, 
that you will use governments to create the conditions around the world for human prosperity and flourishing. You will use the governments of this world to crush oppression and evil. And you will use the governments of this world to make sure that the poor, poor are cared for and the afflicted and the weak and the needy receive justice. But in the midst of all of this, Lord, with the inevitable disappointments and inevitable failures, may we and all peoples of this world be drawn to Jesus, drawn to this King, drawn to this God who would give himself for us so completely, so utterly, so totally, emptying himself of all power and status so that he could live and die and rise again for us and for our salvation. Oh, Jesus, fill us with this hope. This Christmas and always. Amen.